Gypsy with lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, music by Julie Stein, and a book by Arthur Lawrence opened at the Broadway Theater May 21st, 1959. Loosely based on the 1957 memoirs of striptease artist Gypsy Rose Lee, the story focuses on her mother, Rose, whose name has become synonymous as the ultimate show business mother. It follows the dreams and efforts of Rose to raise two daughters, Louise, and June, whose character was based on actor-author June Havoc, and Rose's efforts to get the girls to perform on stage in the waning days of vaudeville in the early 20th century. With us today is Clea Blackhurst, actor, singer, comedian, and self-proclaimed merminologist, <laughs> best known for everything the traffic will allow, her tribute to Ethel Merman that debuted in New York in 2001. Her many performances on stage include Red, Hot, and Blue, Call Me Madam, Anything Goes, Annie Get Your Gun, and As Rose in Gypsy. Nationally recognized multi-award winning actor Ife Butler, who has appeared on national tours in Mamma Mia, Dinah Was, and Ain't Misbehavin', as well as regionally in Sweeney Todd, King Hedley II, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Pullman Porter Blues, and as Rose in Gypsy, received the 2019 Jeff Award. And Mark Robin, Executive Artistic Director at the Fulton Theater, whose prolific and lauded career as an actor, director, composer, lyricist, and playwright includes productions of Sweeney Todd, Pacific Overtures, Company, West Side Story, Forum, and of course, Gypsy. Welcome everyone to the Roundtable. Hey. Hi, everybody. So Hello. let's start off with, with, with the very beginnings. And, I, and our beginning in terms of being exposed to Gypsy, for me, I am proud to say that it was the 1962 film with yes. Roz Russell, which I saw as a youngster, and I, not in the theater, but later on video, and I fell in love with it then. And the thing that, that and I know it's highly debated, the, the qualities of, of the film adaptation, but I think what impressed, impresses me still about it is that all of the great stuff of Gypsy still got through to me even in that film version. And then from there, you know, was uh, wonderfully introduced to a stage production, which is, you know, just the, the, the height of, of, of pleasure. What, for each of you, what was your first exposure to Gypsy? The same thing for me. It was the film. Mm -hmm. It drew me in. And uh, once I saw that film, I was like, okay, I'm on board. I want to see this again and again and again. And I could see it again <laughs> and again and again. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think the record album was my, my introduction. I was very into musical and with my babysitting money, I would buy an album every week and study everything I could about it. And, uh, probably about seven or eighth grade gypsy came along. I bought that at the mall and studied mm -hmm. up on it. And I was already obsessed with, uh, Ethel Merman's voice, but I wasn't necessarily clear that Annie Oakley wasn't the person. So when I realized that Annie Oakley was Rose <laughs> and that voice, I was like, that's the voice that speaks to me. That is the voice that I will follow. Mm -hmm. So, and then I've seen so many productions of it, including Sue Ann Langdon about 1972 in Salt Lake City, she came and did Gypsy. So I remember that pretty clearly as well. So yeah, mm -hmm. sound. And I was 12 years old and my mother had a subscription to the series at Parker Playhouse in Fort Lauderdale and <laughs> some show named Gypsy with some woman named Angela Land <laughs> was doing the play. Some people sit on their butts, got the dream, yeah, but not the guts. That's what they 
sing for some people, for some hum drum people, I suppose. Well, they can stay and watch. And we went and saw the play, but my mom couldn't stay to the ending because we had someplace else we needed to go. And we had watched the entire production up until Louise's first strip. <laughs> and I made her buy a full price ticket to take me back yes. the following night in order to finish that play because I had to know how it ended. You know, and, and at 12 years old, I wasn't aware of, you know, what Gypsy would play in the big scope of my life. But I knew that it was something unlike anything I'd ever seen before because I didn't see it coming. The whole storyline, because at 12, I didn't know about Gypsy Rosalie. I was going to see a play. So I thought it was about June and the mother. But when suddenly the forgotten child rose up to become the star, it shocked me and surprised me in a way I never expected. Mm -hmm. Love that. And how amazing to think that you and, and me, I mean, I was young when I saw it too, that I was looking at it through the child's eyes. Mm -hmm. That's what struck me about it. And, and I recognized qualities in the mother, in my own stepmother, but <laughs> I was seeing it through the kid's eyes and, how, and how, what, what can happen with this particular piece when you're coming to it, you know? Yeah. What strikes me is you go, as was announced at the top, 1959. So we're talking two things happening here. One, what was going on on Broadway or what was presumed to be what you could expect in a Broadway musical in the late 50s. Um, you know, the Music Man was playing that, you know, My Fair Lady was playing, Fiorello, things like this. And then also where it fuses in Merman's career after a, a career full of wisecracking good times with this woman, how much this must have blown people back in their seats, what this musical, the content that it was approaching, subject matter that it wanted to talk about, and then the person on stage doing what she was doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Go ahead. the story constantly, I think, is that it was a piece that empowered a woman in 1959. I thought that was just amazing. And every time I watch the film or see any actress do it, you know, for me, that's the Julia Sears moment, you know, she's, it's a, whew, it's a tour de force and it's a beautiful ride. And it's such a powerful, true American story. It is an American story. It crosses all, you know, racial, religious, it crosses all of those things. You know, everybody, can see these people in life. You know, we know these people, they were so real. I knew those people that were in that film. I knew that energy that was in that film. And I think that was the powerful thing that came to Broadway. It was so real, it was almost too real for some people. It was too mm -hmm. real. Arthur Lawrence did an amazing job and people were like quite ready for it, but that's why it lives on. You can't mm -hmm. knock that down because it's real. That's what I say, it's real. Right. Yeah, I find the script to be absolutely unbelievable to play it, everything is like a perfectly placed word it's there for a reason there's all kinds of things behind what you're saying that you just don't find very much and to the historical context i mean like the tony that year is a tie between fiorello and the sound of music gypsy is not even in there but it just indicates that it's ahead of its time because mm -hmm. you know it, it 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 is what it is and i think merman i i put her in a historic i mean heroic heroic place because she is somebody who has been going since 1930 playing the wisecrack and hey hey girls and um i mean she starts classing herself up around Annie, get your gun and call me madam. But she was willing to let Arthur Lawrence take her where he wanted her to go. I mean, she said that to him. Mm -hmm. How far are you willing to go? As far as you want to take me. And she didn't. Yeah. I mean, that is like bold territory for that kind of performer and that kind of woman. I, yeah. I, I love it. She also had the material to do it. You know, one of the things that I think is was remarkable, and of course, looking at it from a child's perspective, watching the play, you don't understand this. You're just aware that every time they speak and then they sing, it feels like one. 
that mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like sometimes where you go to see a show and you're aware that now there's a musical number where I feel specifically where Sondheim's contribution in his second show, so to speak, for me was so brilliant now looking at it as an adult and certainly looking at it from a director's point of view is that it is perfectly seamless that the words in which these people are singing to take them to that next level of theatricality are words that we would use. They're words that we understand, words that everybody understands. So, you know, Rose's turn, which to me, I think may be one of the most brilliant pieces of theatricalizations on stage ever, is the way so many artists feel. They want that moment. Um, and, and it gets to you at all times. And I think that, you know, one of the things, in, and I'm not a Merman, you know, historian, I certainly don't have the breadth or the knowledge of her history, but I do know that when I listen to her sing some of that score versus other scores, I believe wholeheartedly that I've left Merman and I've embodied Mama Rose. And that's one of the things that when I think about Gypsy as a whole, I think it's kind of the perfect play. I think everybody's so clearly and beautifully written from both a lyric sense and from a dramatic sense that you have no choice, as, as Ife said, to, you know, identify with that. Yeah, well said. Yeah. And interesting that the, the early drafts of this, where they initially thought that they were going to go, was animal acts and, and jugglers and this sort of journey through old vaudeville with, you know, this little backstage showbiz story peppered in to as an anchor and what they ended up with and where they dared to go. Uh, I, I think that's also, you have to give Gypsy Rose Lee a whole bunch of credit because this memoir, when you read it, could, could go a thousand directions. And yes. the fact that she stood by and let this be the direction is really, pretty stunning i mean that's nobody I, I don't feel like i know a person with an ego today that would let their memoir completely almost derail and focus on their mother and still feel that the story got told i mean she was very happy with it mm -hmm. absolutely gave her blessing and this is where she wanted it to go if this is where these creators wanted to take it and that's amazing especially at the time that she was still a star yeah, it yeah. wasn't even that she was a has-been that yeah. perhaps a memoir would resurrect. She was still a star. <laughs> yes, exactly. She was yeah. fearless, which was why I think the piece is fearless. You know, it yeah. took a group of fearless people to do that. You know, and Gypsy Rosie, that's a, hey, that's a family right there, child. Yeah, that's the family. <laughs> that's the family you want to be in a dark alley with if something go down, because they go fight. You know, the fighters, and all of the girls were fighters. You know, they all had their own path. I just love how it's set up, because that's the way life is. And it, it's not always happy. And I love that about this piece. I love that people leave the theater and they go, whoa, what happened? What? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. There's something you forgot to tell me. No. <laughs> you got it, yeah. Yeah, but it's also a tribute just to, I mean, the fact that uh, Gypsy Rose Lee by this point had already been writing. She had a, 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 a few novels. She was writing murder mysteries, you know, the, the striptease murders and stuff like this, that as an author, she was smart enough to really realize this is the character that people are yeah. going to. She's writing her own, you know, we're thinking a biography, an autobiography, and the star of the autobiography is not her. <laughs> because she was smart enough to know this woman is somebody who is a character that people are going to want to learn about. You're not going to be able, the fact that I can say she's my mother is going to make it doubly impactful because nobody would believe this character pushing people out windows uh -uh. if I wrote it. <laughs> Kidnapping children on the streets. Right. Yes. I have relatives like this, believe me. <laughs> and the thing you know, when it comes to this being a Sondheim musical, this is in the canon of Sondheim, to think the at the time, you know, he wanted to write the music and the lyrics, and he wasn't the Sondheim we know now. This was him being put a little bit in, you know, in a, in a place behind Julie Stein, uh, because he was not wanted. I think it's a, a kind of a great, I, I think it's a wonderful thing about Sondheim that his first instinct was no. 
because he had been given he had been given the project words and music. Uh, and then it was Merman who really put the kibosh on him. What I kind of feel is he understood that that was not personal. Her project right before this was called Happy Hunting and it had an unknown lyricist and composer. And she, a lot of things mortified her about that project. And it's like, I'm not going with a composer that's not tried and true. Wow. So the, that kid can write the lyrics. She's happy with that. He's good enough for that. He's good. She didn't think he wasn't good. She just said, I want Julie Stein to like write me some Julie Stein stuff. So in a way we have Merman to thank for the score we have now. And we have Stephen Sondheim to thank for being willing to be at the beginning where he was and say, okay, you know, as, as Hammerstein said to him, you get a chance to write for a star. This will be valuable information for you to think of somebody in particular and write for them. You still have something you can learn from this. So I think everybody's a hero in this story, don't mm -hmm. I, today? Right. I and, that, and that still goes along with the time period, Michael, that you were talking about. In the late 50s, Broadway was still a star vehicle series. Mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't, you know, the Broadway that most people think of today is completely different than when all of these, what I call iconic musicals came to be. So many of them were written for the personality or for the star. Um, and if the star said, this is what I wanted, well, then that made the project happen. You know, I think we've gotten away from that to a large degree. Um, but so much of it, you know, is also the marriage of the material to the personality. You know, writing for someone like Ethel Merman, who had that sort of outward, Mama Rose and her were a perfect match, you know. Um, and it was a lovely surprise to the community to see Ethel Merman in a way they'd never seen her before and be successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that's the risk. You right. know, you can be a star all you want. You know, it's like, you know, watching Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You know, if, you're, you know, if anybody watches that. You know, just because you want to be a star on Broadway doesn't mean the material matches what you do. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and the thing that's so remarkable about this show and going back and, and, and looking at its history from that first production is how many times, for something that, as you're saying, rightfully so, Mark, that it was written as a star vehicle to some degree, has been revived in performing productions on Broadway, m more than so many other musicals. The number of revivals of, of Gypsy on Broadway is kind of staggering considering anything else. Yeah. And the fact that it goes on and on and is done by Leslie Uggams and Clea Blackhurst and Ife Butler, that it isn't a star vehicle in the sense that it was tethered to the talents of Merman but it, it is such a generous and smart piece that a brilliant acting singer can wrestle it and make it her own. Right. Oh, yeah. Without question, you know, I'm not saying this because Ife Butler is on the line, <laughs> but you know, Kurt and I you know, flew from Lancaster, Pennsylvania to go see your production of Gypsy, you know, partly because I love Michael Weber and I believe in everything he's doing, but also because of my love affair with Ife Butler. And knowing what she was like when she played Dolly in Hello, Dolly, I couldn't wait to see what she would bring to this very powerful woman. And it wasn't Ife's power that, that was the thing that brought me to tears. It was her vulnerability. It was the quiet moments with her. It was the real family moments. It was watching someone that I'd known my entire life become a vessel of a family and have the ability in one second to go from being absolutely vulnerable to being the person that you don't want to meet in that dark alley that she mentioned earlier. <laughs> but part of it is the combination of the brilliance in writing. And then of course you have an actress, as you said, an actress singer that doesn't have to be a household name, although in my house, Ife Butler is. Um, but the ability to tap into the material in an honest way. And that's what I think for me, Gypsy is so great is it's an honest show that doesn't require all of the glitz and doesn't require anything but the honest storytellers and it's yeah. a, it's a remarkable thing to see i think and that's why i think it's done over and over because every woman you know um has the opportunity to put her voice into that role that they wrote so many years ago and i think that's why it's so successful because every voice makes it different i totally totally thank you mark thank you you know i love you, I love you. <laughs> but um I absolutely totally agree. I think that's the thing that has always drawn me to Gypsy 
is I think one as an artist, if you want to challenge yourself and you want to go for that piece of the pie that I think does include vulnerability and your strengths and just release and trust the material you have in front of you. That's the thing about Gypsy for me. You can trust it. Yes. You don't have to work as hard as people <laughs> think it is. Yes, it takes energy to do the piece. That I'll give you. But it takes energy because you must trust it. You have to give yourself over to it. You have to have a great director. I love you. I love you. I love you, Michael. You have to have a great director. And you just have to give yourself over to the piece. When you do that, it is the ride of your life that it changes constantly, just like life does. Every performance. That's what tires you out. I agree. One time I thought I was getting ready to sing Some People, which as ever, you know, is the first song. And for some reason I flashed on something about Rose's turn and I panicked and I thought, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Because if you think about Rose's turn anywhere near Some don't People, do it. you're going to die. But if you just be in the moment, you will get there in the most efficient, beautiful way possible. But the energy by the end of, I mean, by the end of Everything's Coming Up Roses, when Act One is over, it's, it's, it's faint on the floor worthy, which I believe Linda Lavin told me when she used to do, when she did it on Broadway, the curtain would come down and she'd just lay down on the floor and, yes. and, and do her first, you know, minute there. Yes. But um, uh, yes, it's all energy. And, and you can't get ahead of yourself. You just need to know it inside out. And like you say, if I trust it, just trust it. It's going to take you there. It's gotten along without you. <laughs> For many years. <laughs> it's going to keep going without you. So just trust it, you know. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, having seen Clea, and Clea was amazing uh, as Rose. And then was amazing in her own way. And that's the thing is that it, it takes me in that weird way back that I can also go. There were elements about Rosalind Russell that were amazing to me. And, 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 and what Carl Malden did that stuck in my head. And th I mean, so it, it is this gift to actors as a play that it gives great actors such a rich, it, it's, it's no joke that they say that this is King Lear for yes. a female actor. Yes. It, it is the musical King Lear for, for a leading lady. And uh, I, I think you'll keep getting Broadway revivals for a long time because absolutely. as an actress becomes more powerful in her career, who doesn't want to stop here? And that, that has a lot of power, I would think, with money people. If you have somebody big that wants to do it for a minute, yeah, let's get it together and do it. Yeah. And that there can be many different nuances to the approach. It doesn't, yeah. well, and this was as Mark was pointing out, having you know been, been so lucky to see the see Angela Lansbury, and you go back and you read about that moment, the amount of pressure that was on Lansbury in 73 to be the first in a major production. Certainly it had been done in stock and, and, and things like that, but the first in a, in, a, in a major production in London and then in Broadway to step into these shoes when people had renditions of these songs so clearly performed in their head. And she's going, I'm none of those things. I, I don't sing like that. I don't look like that. I don't move like that. Oh, and I got a British accent. <laughs> how, how, how much, how intimidating it must have been for her then. That's extraordinary, that it even exists. Well, I'm very grateful that we have footage that shows a part of the way that you did it. Oh, no, no more grateful than I, just to be reminded of uh, the, the production that I was part of for a number of years, and um, to see what I did at that time, and what I considered okay, you know, and... Uh, uh, I'm so glad you did. Brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> and yeah. it's only been less than 10 years since it actually was there.
on Broadway and yeah. she's doing it. So it, it is, you're right. It's very like close to the sort, yeah. but she's also one of those fearless performers. But I think that's why it takes a great actress. If you look, you great artist, it ain't gonna look, I'm with you. You can do it again. You want to do it next month? We're going to do it with you next month. Yep. You can do that because it takes the, it's the, the actress. It's the person that steps up to the shoes that draws you to the theater. We know the story. But they, also, the story. but they also did a really incredible job of surrounding her with unbelievable supporting actors. Yes. Roles, character, characters that are iconic of a period that um, I don't think our audiences, you know, Broadway audiences had never seen the vaudeville presented in a fashion that was as real as it was. It wasn't the, hey, Busby Berkeley type of, you know, Minsky's all the time. It was the down and the dirty and the, you know, um, uh, oh my God, Michael, you played him. What's the, Uncle Jocko. Uncle Jocko. You know, <laughs> you know, when you start at the beginning and see the whole journey, because aside, not to take anything away from Mama Rose, but it's also a survival story. Yes. You know, at the core, it's a family story. And it's, you know, you watch it and you root for these people to get out and to get on and to succeed. And, you know, you, you follow that journey. So I think it's also incredibly well written to support her because there's some star vehicles that without the star, the play doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and Gypsy is, you know, one of those that I think that, you know, it works on so many different levels. Well, to that degree, too, I mean, even, you know, to start with Uncle Jocko, Uncle Jocko's got a killer scene at the top of the show, and then he doesn't come back. And then you got Pops, and then he doesn't come back. And then you got Cigar, and he doesn't come back. And then you got the Clippers, and they don't come back. It, I mean, it is an epic. It's, it's on par with Showboat or, or Les Mis in terms of the, the trek of years that you vote which is another reason to be very grateful that it was created when it was created, because a producer wouldn't let it happen now. Oh, you can't have June and Tulsa disappear at intermission. <laughs> Not without coming back as somebody else in Act Two. That's right. <laughs> which you know they would. Yes, that's what would happen now. But that is not something would fly. Or all those children who yeah. grow up and we don't see them again. Okay. Now there are other <laughs> actors that we've never seen. You know. Okay. Um, speaking of Uncle Jocko. Uh oh. Uh oh. She's going to get something. Get my dog played my dog played Chowsy. Oh <laughs> And she would stand at the back of the house every night and be annoyed when the when the Usher tried to say hello to her because she was listening to Uncle Jocko. She was like, <laughs> I gotta get a sense of where we are tonight, you know. She was an excellent, excellent Chowsy. This is Sprout. Thank you, Sprout, for making an appearance. Sprout. <laughs> She's always sleeping at my feet, so I'm glad she was there to punctuate that moment. Well, Route knows that an actor prepares. <laughs> method, method actor. Now, here's the thing that that also strikes me. You know, the, the thing about this piece, the book of this show. You know, I mean, there are very few shows. 1776. You know, a few of them that the book is so strong. So you. Is this a play with music? It almost gets in there. It truly, in some ways, almost feels like a kitchen sink drama that is about people who are in show business. That all of those scenes hold together like the best of Clifford Odets or Arthur Miller or anything at that time. And then there's also musical numbers that, that are part of it. Which, I think that's the, best of, that's the best part of this piece for me is that you can detach it and just read the story, the story, the story. It's what gives you the ability to personalize it for yourself because mm -hmm. you see yourself in the story. You see these people in your life in this story, just the story. If we just take away the music and do the story, I mean, you know, we, this is Americana. So that's why it speaks to you. So that's what the why it's so rich to just read the story. That's the first thing I ever did with this piece is I read it and I fell in love with the book. I said, this thing can go in many directions. It gives you so much space, but it guides you right in the right direction. And um, that's, that's the beauty of the piece for me is the book. I rely on it because I'm an actor that sings. I'm not a singer that acts. So because of that, the book is important to me. And also, you know, going back to Sondheim, part of that is how successful they were 
from going from the last scripted dialogue into the first sung lyric, which literally, as you read it as a script, as a play, all That's music right. aside, it, it flows perfectly, perfectly. straight through. Perfectly. And it follows, you know, most, most audiences won't remember the lyrics of what you're singing, but they'll remember how they felt when you were singing it. And that's the thing sometimes with Gypsy that the, that the journey of both took you on the same, on the right emotional journey to get to the next point. And just reading it as a straight read to a, at, a, at, a, at a table read and you read the lyrics out loud, you've got that journey because the emotional points are connected. Yeah. Right. It's a piece that doesn't have any fat on it. You know? I agree. You the Chinese restaurant scene, the choice of words, the choice of directions, the, the things that end up being funny that you don't even know exactly why the rhythm is funny. You know, the thing about, I read variety. I can't remember it specifically, but there are lines that just, they flow like when you're talking to somebody and they just are funny to you. Um, nothing is a setup joke, but nope. there's lots of funny, there's lots of punchlines. And um, Arthur Lawrence really, out, he outdid himself, which is why I was not a fan when uh, they were when when the the last revival happened. He was ninety, and they were sort of talking about how he had fixed the things that had always bothered him. It's like no, no, too late for that. Sorry, <laughs> we're very attached to this the way it is. We will we not have a word said about Kringleine. I mean, mm -hmm. stop yourselves right now. You know, right. So it's pretty perfect. I I agree. And there are changes. I remember I might have spoken with, with Faye about this when we were doing it, That because I have a copy of the script of revisions that he did when he did it with Tyne Daly. Yes. And there were changes that he, subtle things, little things that, that went throughout. And, and I've got like the original with his handwriting in it of where he scratched. And I'm like, why would you scratch? <laughs> no, that is... It is what it is. You're exactly right, Clea. It, it is just like, don't, 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 this is not the one that you need to be tweaking um, to, to modernize it. Because- You wanna know, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, please. My, my favorite change that I've ever, I studied um, uh, Ethel Merman's script for Gypsy, her working rehearsal script. And this isn't what you're talking about. This is like even before that, which is just a fun thing that I love knowing is the very first thing when Rose came down the aisle, she says, she said, dip on two and four, Louise, dip on two and four. And you can see that it's scratched out with a red pen and Ethel Merman, right, her handwriting above says, sing out, Louise. And I don't say that Merman made that change. I see that Arthur Lawrence made that change and said, you know what, dip on two and four, dip on two and four, no. Sing out, Louise. That's a better entry there. And that's the kind of stuff that it's like, yes, that comes in before and gives us what we need. The stuff that comes after is like, uh-uh, we, we can, you've, you've hit your stride here. This is it. Stick with it. Right. Yeah, I've seen that same. Another, another quality. It's amazing. You don't get Mark. Uh, sorry, another uh, quality in the show that, that you, you know, talked about by saying sing out Louise, the fact that that's something that's done as a child and then brought back at the end of the play to echo when she's going out onto the stage for what she will, you know, become in her life. When you look at Let Me Entertain You, you know, how, how amazing was it that here was a musical motif that was used as a simple child song that then became this theme of progression through the whole show. So by the time you got to this, you know, from this innocent little song, you know, with the Dutch girl to this strip tease, raunchy burlesque. And if you feel, you know, and if you're real good, it, I think it's just brilliant. I, it's just, it's one of the things about the planet just excites me every time I see it. Well, I mean, to, to that degree too. I mean, people always talk about, you know, Oklahoma, opening with, you know, Ann Eller and, and, and the butter. Gypsy opens and there's nothing happens. It, I mean, there's no opening number. There's no, hey, it's Bob Bill, it's 1920. You know, it opens with a, with a cacophony, with a, with a bunch of screaming kids and yapping dogs. And, and then it has this very small, opens. innocuous little opening musical number until boom, in the, in the second scene comes the big number. <laughs> but after one of the most iconic and amazing overtures in Broadway yeah, yeah. musical theater. That's true. Now and that is true. 
And there's been times where I've directed the show for another producer where they've like, we have to cut the show ah. down. We have to make it shorter. So the first thing we're gonna do is cut the overture down. And I'm like, then you're gonna be getting a different person. <laughs> because literally <laughs> when those trumpets rip out at the build at the end of that overture, it's everything for me to start that show because it's from that that the chaos of the noise of those kids and Uncle Jocko and everything bursts out of that. How do you start the play otherwise? Yeah, yeah. I made, I made that mistake the first time I directed it. <laughs> I allowed them. I, Sorry, we, Michael. I know, but you learn. You learn. And it was, it was a mistake. And it, and it was, and part of it was, you know, the band wasn't that big and you didn't have, you know, whatever the reason, these, these economical reasons that you do these things. But yeah, it, it was a total mistake. Total mistake. But, you know, to go, back, to go back to the book, and here's, for me, I mean, uh, you, get, you get your rose, and you get a great rose, and you're good to go. But you can thwart that great rose if you don't have a great Herbie. Oh, yes. Oh, well. And, and there's a lot of different ways I've seen it played. And it always doesn't work, and it can sink the show. Yeah. Herbie. Yes. And to think that, you go back and you look and you go, it was Jack Klugman. Yeah. Well, my God, we're talking a br brilliant, brilliant actor. The main thing, and I, because I get annoyed when people do a production, they say, oh, well, this Rose is going to be sexy. She's not going to be that steamroller, blah, 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 all that. No. The main thing is that your Rose and your Herbie have to be sexually compatible. So who would be sexually compatible with Merman? Jack Klugman is a perfect choice. He's not a pinup, he's a, no, right? I mean, I can see that they would do it. So you have Bernadette She, Peters, she married Ernest Borgnine. Yes, her <laughs> part. I mean, so you get Bernadette Peters, you say, well, I can see her being romantically involved with John Dawson. John Dawson is completely different than a Jack Klugman, but he's a wonderful actor that I could imagine romantically involved with Bernadette Peters. That's the main thing is you have to see these two as, I mean, she's got to have something that keeps him there. Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Made it. Yeah. It's the most important thing. Yeah, he's a wonderful, and he all he sings is, ah, Rose, ah, Rose. Mm -hmm. You know, he had a song, but he yeah. didn't they didn't why weigh casting that person down with yes. another line that you have to get through which is like surviving a song he doesn't need to right. no nope. not necessary we've got all that covered in other places so mm -hmm. yeah you're right it's very important oh jack klugman well and it's just so clear in the book too when you when you get into the scene, you know when they're what, number one in the Chinese restaurant, and then in the scene when when in Goldstone, that these two people are clearly sleeping together, and yeah. and she's not married to him, no. and those kids are aware of it, yeah. and and yet and, and yet you know and all the kids are sleeping together, and they're all getting they're all in their early teens in the explorative ages, and yet. She's got Louise sleeping in there with the boys. Right. And who the hell knows what's going on with all of these kids. It, 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 the frankness of this piece for 59, um, which I don't think is just simply tied to it going, well, it's going to be Gypsy Rosalie, so therefore it's going to be raunchy, but that it was going to go, um, as Faye is saying, a piece of Americana. It is talking about this era vaudeville burlesque which was relatively still well known and a joke on the jack benny show and and, and things like this about the collapse of vaudeville our days you know there was always a, some variety show where bob hope and george burns would we're gonna do the vaudeville day so all of these people <laughs> knew about those times of families traveling and living out of trunks and and constantly encountering other show business people that uh, how did they hold marriages together? How did they hold their families together on the road? It must have been pretty dramatic. 
Yes. The other, thing, the other thing about this particular piece, though, that I thought they were really smart with is that it isn't Mama Rose, in, in my, my opinion, in watching it and having done it. It isn't just Mama Rose that hooks Herbie. It's the kids first. It's the fact that he sees these kids and he, you know, from a man's point of view, he's wants these, he wants to help these kids. So I think this first thing is to help this pioneer woman because of the kids. And then she reels him in like she does everything else around her. Um, and the other part of that, you know, to go back to what you were saying, Michael, about, you know, them all being together is she keeps saying to the entire play, Oh, Herbie, they're children. They're children, and, and I believe in her mind they are children. She's not even thinking about the fact that, you know, she's got, you know, uh, Yonkers and Tulsa um, all in the same room as, Ju as, as June and, um, and Louise, even thinking about it from what is that like as a supercharged teenager that doesn't have any other outlet? Because to them, they're nothing but children. But that's the thing. What's interesting, she doesn't let June in, June in with the girl, with the boys. June is sleeping with Louise, with, with Rose, because she comes in, you woke mother. Right. That's true. But so they're, she, still, they're still compressed in, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously Tulsa and June figure it out, but. Yeah. <laughs> they find some place. But maybe that's just it, is because she, she separates June and says, June's a girl, Louise is whatever. Whatever. <laughs> She's just cheap. Right. Poor Louise. Yeah. She truly mm -hmm. says that, yeah. Mm -hmm. But also, let's get into, just, I have, uh, well, I have an opinion. This is one of those leading questions. But I think uh, the, the template of Merman, that I get really uncomfortable calling her a monster. I don't find her a monster at all no. in her actions. I find her a deeply um, un incomplete person. And her choices are all based around that. But in her mind, she genuinely thinks she's doing the best thing for these kids. Absolutely. I don't think she does those things from a point of like, you know, did that little so-and-so, I'm going to make her go out there. No, these are all choices that she is making based on this is a great choice. And I think that's stamped in the original Merman thing, which is maybe a little bit of Merman not fully sometimes understanding kind of, how people are perceiving this because she never thought that she played her as a monster it, ever and for me know. that's always determined by the way in which whoever's playing rose says one line in the play which, which is one? when she turns around and says and i can make you now because if it's done with this maniacal i'm crazy and insane and i'm gonna take my yeah. you know all my you know, baggage forward and release it on my children, or if it's a, okay, I've lost my ability to live my life through this child. I'm going to now do it through you and keep my hope going. And, you know, I completely agree with you. Rose isn't a monster. She's a mother. And she's a mother who's doing the best she can in, a, in, in times and circumstances where she's fighting to get everybody to have just food on the table. And she'll do whatever she can while trying to live the life she never had through the daughter she thinks can live it for her. I mean- By any means necessary. That's what I always that's say. That's life. By any means necessary. Um, and, and she's gonna do what she thinks is right and the strongest point. And you know, and she's gonna fight for her cubs. Those children are not going without because if they go without, I go without. So we're going to have. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm do it, and girls, you're going to come along with me. This is not a discussion, and anybody that doesn't like that around the fringe, you can go. Right. That's why she goes to so many men. Men is somebody you dismissed, and she keeps moving. <laughs> she also, you know, if you look at it at the end of the play, when she does Rosen's turn, you're hopeful that the audience is going to feel for her. Mm -hmm. And if she's been played as a monster, I don't care yeah. what she does on the eleventh hour. I'm not going to forgive you. Right. If you care for her because she truly cares and believes that what she's doing is right, when you get Rose's turn, it's the explanation, finally, of why. of why. And then Louise can forgive her because she's witnessed it and go, you know what, Mother? You really would have been something. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's iconic because it's true. It's real. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Me too, I agree. 
<laughs> that's nice. That's a nice panel discussion. And, you know, the other thing too is, you know, I, I, we haven't talked about, you know, what, you know, Michael and my, you know, performance experiences with Gypsy, but I got my equity card at age 21 playing the back end of the cow in the Marriott Lincolnshire's production of Gypsy <laughs> starring Allie Robertson. And until I had done that production, I never saw Gypsy again from the time I was 12, 13 years old. But I remember, because we were at Center East when we were performing it, and Dominic Massimi was directing it, and Victoria Bussert was the assistant director. And wow. I remember me standing over the side with George Newburn and you know um, Rob Ron, who was playing Tulsa, wow. when Aline sang Rose's Turn for the first time. And you could have heard a pin drop when she said, Mama, let go and hit the deck. Nobody was breathing. And we all knew the play. We were in it, but we were living it through her. And we were feeling so much for her. And, and that's a moment I'll take with me for the rest of my life. Because as a director now, that's the moment I always try to recreate. That sense of honesty and purpose. And, you know, yes, Aline was at the beginning of her career at the time. But it was like I'm sure they felt when, when Ethel Merman did something for the very first time. You think, oh my God, I'm in the presence of what's going to be brilliance and wrapped in this play. And, and I think it's, it's a testament to, again, what the writing is for this piece because it's so honest and it's so real, but it's, it's, you, you can stop an audience's breath with it if you care and if she's real and not a monster. It's interesting that 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 takeaway when you are in a production and eventually I I did go in and was able to have the pleasure to to do it with Faye towards the end of the run we had lost an actor but the first time I had done it was with Lapone with Patty Lapone and it was her first time doing it and there was so much of a different kind of a pressure <laughs> for her you felt because it had taken so long before she was allowed to play it and it seemed so natural that she was after call me madam and anything goes that she was the sort of successor to merman in merman's roles and yet she had she had never played it and so to be in the presence of that artist navigating this show with that much expectation of we're going to see i mean i vividly remember the first day we went through the whole show, or the whole act one, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I'm the first person ever to hear Patti Lapone perform the role of Rose. I'm in the room and it's happening in front of me. She's never done this before. Uh, what a thrill. And at the same time, to, similarly to be in a production that Faye had already sort of triumphed in, with the reviews that she had received and then to go into it and be in it. And at the same time, sitting there and, and, and watching Clea at Drury Lane, knowing what I knew about Clea and her long-term connection to Merman and being this celebrant and fan and, and, uh, docent almost of you know merman's wonderful career but watching clea go but i'm not gonna fall behind i'm not gonna do a merman interpretation in impersonation mm -hmm. i'm it's gonna be me and but i, I love her you know that pressure you're talking about was there for me too because i'm just a musical theater actress i mean you know i kind of got my foot in the door doing this show that i put together about her which is not an impersonation it's just a, a celebration really yeah. of her career but that I had the same experience of, I want my gypsy to be good. You know, I, mean, I don't think I've ever worked or been under more pressure that I was putting on myself um, than that. Wanting to get that, not right, who knows what right is, but at least uh, have it be a credible, good, good old fashioned try to try to get it right. Um, because it's just that piece. If you have any knowledge of anything, like you're saying, it's our King Lear. If you have any expectation of like having the imaginary doctorate in the sky, you have to play Rose to get it in musical theater. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, Ife, can I ask you a question? Yeah. So talking about, you know, tagging off of that, how much pressure did you have going into this role with Michael? Because I know that Michael was so passionate about directing this piece and that there was nobody, you know, that he wanted to do it with, you know, to take the 
steps that you took in putting that production on, you know, he, he was passionate about partnering with you because I remember him talking about it well in advance. You know, so it's one thing looking at it from a director's point of view and going, I stand behind the decisions I make. But then you make the decisions and, you know, you step into the role. What kind of pressure was like, was that like for you, knowing that people were coming in to go, all right, Ife, <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think the pressure was is that I had been asking for 20 years to do the piece. And everybody kept laughing at me. They kept saying, oh, that's fun. And my <laughs> first, you know, they, they said, what do you want to do? I don't care where I was. And I've said this before, arena stage. I don't care where I was. Um, all over the country, people would ask me, what is the next role you want to do? Baltimore City, any place I was, I was a guy. And I go, I want to do uh, Madame Rose. They go, oh, that's interesting. And they just, Goodman, what do you want to do, Fessett? Gypsy. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Michael, and I did it in my, the show that Felicia Fields and I put together. And I said in the show, I do this whole thing at the end of the first act where I, what I'm saying is, this is the role I want to do. I don't care. You can get six of you together in a room, I'll do it. And Michael saw it and Michael said, you're serious, aren't you? And I went, yes! <laughs> and from that, I was ready to do it. But I guess the pressure was off because it is exactly what I say. As an artist, is it exactly the challenge I wanted? I could care less what anybody else thought about it. I had this vision of Mama Rose and who she is from my perspective. And that's what I wanted to share with the audiences that came in. And so that took the pressure off of me because all put I- Put it on Michael. I put, put it on Michael. <laughs> and yes. that, but I wanted it to be a community that people that came to see the show could see themselves could understand the story from wherever they come, you know, to cross all of those barriers. And vaudeville is the perfect venue for that because everybody was in vaudeville. It had no color, it had no, you know, vaudeville was vaudeville. We were just one big happy theatrical family. That's what this show is about. <laughs> one big happy theatrical family. And Michael got that and I love and it was a blast because people came in every night and they literally would go, damn. All right. Why didn't I do that. I said, because you said no. Charlie <laughs> said no. Everybody said no. So when Bob Falls came and Charlie Newell came and all those people came, I went, huh. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. She <laughs> loves them. She still loves those people. I love them too. <laughs> she still wants that. to work for you. She still wants to work for you. She still wants to work for you. <laughs> no. Appreciate them all coming, but I went, see? So mm -hmm. thank you, Michael. Important. Yes. But you know, the, the thing too that we haven't really got into, and, and it, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but it is that it is Louise, you know, which which for me in in many ways, I mean, when you're when you're working from and this is you know, director to director almost, you know, between Mark, that for me the key in some ways was Louise, more so even than Rose, because you're going. It takes you back to go, the book was Gypsy's book. That's the name above the title. So why isn't it called Rose? Because you're supposed <laughs> to be paying attention to her. She is almost like in Cabaret, she's the I am a camera. Mm -hmm. She's the lens that we're, we're seeing the show. As a res at the conclusion of tonight's story, that character is going to go write a book about all of this. Right. And, so, and without question, if you look at it from that lens, Mama Rose, even Herbie, go through their lives and an event happens that they finally go, okay, enough. But they don't necessarily change who they are. They just uh, say, okay, enough. Louise is the one that changes. Mm -hmm. She's the one that goes from this. She takes the full journey of disappointments and almosts and I can'ts to succeed, to become, and then evolve. Well, that's who your play is about, the person that has the largest change in the arc of the play. Mama Rose just keeps going and, you know, ricocheting off of everything. She's the pinball in the machine, but it's Louise's machine. <laughs> I love my Louise. For the record, I didn't love her lover till way after the show. <laughs> I did fall in love with my Louise later. Sprout and I shared a dressing room with Andrea Preston Ariel, and about four months, I realized 
I, I went back to New York. I said, that, that girl's special. Anyway, she lives here with me now. So that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's a true meet cute. Okay. It, was, that, it was very cute. And, 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 and this was the thing too, was that a Andrea, like so many people that I've seen play Louise, I, w I wouldn't have automatically went, oh, Andrea Prestonario. I've seen so many actors step up to the plate with that role. With Rose, you know you've got to have somebody who has certain goods. Yeah. Louise is so elusive because she begins as such a little, you know, larvae that develops <laughs> into this. So where are you going to, where does the actor join the production? Do you get somebody who is super sexy and comfortable with their act two moment? Or do you get somebody who really is crushingly attractive because of their social awkwardness? I mean, that's, as Mark's talking, an arc. You need an actor. Yeah. So, And I was so spoiled because the first time I ever was in the world of Gypsy as an adult, even though I was in it, that person was Paula Scrifano. Mm -hmm. You tell me if what you just said is not the definition yeah. of what Paula Scrifano is in every role she's ever been. Someone who's able to literally be a chameleon so that at the beginning of a play, you could disappear and not even know she's in the scene unless she wants you to know that. Yet if you watch her knowing the plays about her, she's present in every second and then turns it on to become whatever she needs to be in every single Louise I have ever seen. It's funny, other than Mama Rose's, actually more than Mama Rose, it's the Louise's that I've spent the time with to make sure that they could check all of those boxes that I sat and watched Paula do every single night. And when that show closed, and I loved Aline, I, to this day I love Aline, but I ran into Paula's dressing room, remember I was 21 years old, sobbing <laughs> because the show was closing and threw my arms around her and I, I'll, I mean, I'll remember that for the rest of my life and, and you know, she's still a very close friend, but, but I think Louise has to be real, accessible, and someone that an audience thinks is beautiful inside first. Because Gypsy Rose Lee wasn't a stunning woman by, you know, beauty standards, but she thought she was stunning. And she teased in a way that you believed she was stunning and therefore you wanted her to take off that glove. Um, and uh, and I think it's I think it's one of the hard I think it's harder I think Louise is one of the hardest trolls in the show. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. And in 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 just to conclude that tribute to Paula Scrifano, she also was an amazing Rose, which yes. she eventually Stunning. played too. You know, you you make a point earlier, uh, Mark. I think you were talking about just the uh, uh, about the let me entertain you component of it. And I mean to get back just to to the achievements of Sondheim and Julie Stein and Lorenz, just this device, this time travel device of the evolution of a song that in its own way becomes a character in the show. The, the sheep music that Rose pulls out and the scene where she's going through military march. Uh, I don't know what the, I mean, you got, the two of you may remember what those different, you know, Latin beat music that in their little suitcase is this whole array of other characters, which is the music of how they, the, the, what the act could be about at any given moment. Take out the newsboys, stick in farm boys, but it's the same thing. Take out farm boys, stick in Tori Adorables, but it's the same music. What an incredible dramatic device. And an incredible metaphor of her not ever letting go of the past. That's true. They were successful when they were on Grand Singers or on their way to Grand Singers. That's what she thought. That was the ultimate moment for their success. Dainty June was on her way. This is the suitcase that contains all of that and only that. In the play, you never get any new material <laughs> from Mama Rose past that. It's Louise who, you know, comes up with the new materials and, you know, she's already stuck with the wind machine to blow her gown off, you know. <laughs> but Mama Rose's whole life is in a suitcase. It's also the metaphor for the life, the suitcase. Um, but to take Let Me Entertain You, even the title is brilliant in the various ways that that becomes important in the moment it's being played in the show. Is, you know, is, it's, it's beautiful metaphorically.
Well, and it's funny because it's only occurring to me now, and part of it is through this series of repeated conversations we've been having about the work of Sondheim, but that device, and I've never really put it together, that Let Me Entertain You works in the same way as um, I Wish in- Into the Woods. Into the Woods, or in, in, in um, oh, uh, in Sunday in the Park, uh, it's the 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 repeated motifs of uh, forever, forever. You know, I mean, the the use of similar words over and over, and how they change because the story is going on. The more you get to know a character, which is something that you you start to identify with Sondheim as a tool that he uses to allow you to show somebody's evolution to how they use certain terms, phrases. When they first do the song, when they're children, do they say, may we entertain you? Yes. yes. Yeah. So that's yeah. an interesting switch to like, whenever that becomes, let, mm -hmm. let me. Because uh, the first one is like asking permission, to, you know, speaking of like the meaning of things. And it's like, uh-uh, we don't wait anymore. We just like, here it is, let me do this. Yeah. It's also It's also incredible in the moment that, you know, that incredible sequence of Louise's strips you know, that sort of, you know, I don't know how long it is, seven, eight minutes, whatever it is, where she takes a song from her childhood that she's petrified to sing just like she was petrified to sing it and gains confidence of going from a child to a woman in the course of those, yeah. you know, that, that section while changing clothes and watching the interpretation of the let me entertain you timid to I'm going to without your permission or not. Um, that's why I made my, to bring this full circle to my first statement of, the, of this, this interview, that's why I made my mother take me back. She had just started <laughs> and I was like, what is happening? Happen? <laughs> you know, and I was so glad I went back because I wouldn't have seen Rose's turn yeah. if I had gone back and, and, you know, have all of that. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an astonishing thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it must've been something to be in a room with Julie Stein and Stephen Sondheim just the energy of that, mm -hmm. to know that I really do feel, because of the sounds of Stein, that Stephen captured something that stuck with him for the rest of his life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's a pattern and there's a method to Stein's music that I still hear when I listen to Sondheim at times. Um, and I'm sure he got that as that young man, you know, listening to him, because what it would be like to be a musician who can write music, but you're hired to do something else. Not saying you didn't want to do it, you know, I know initially, but to be able to learn from a master and mm -hmm. kind of steal the little tips and little bits and stick it in and say, oh, that actually works. And I can take credit for that. From Bernstein to Julie Stein, those are like, you're like, oh, yes, let me you know what these guys do. That's a Absolutely. good- Steins were good to him. Have, have you? Yeah, they were. <laughs> have you seen the um, the silent films of of uh, uh, Louise? It went to the first rehearsal with a Super 8 camera and yeah. took silent films of it. That's yeah. when the, there's a version where she narrates where she's talking about the the film itself, and she's saying it's a picture of Ethel Merman. I mean, it's the film is showing Ethel Merman at the piano, Julie Stein seated at the piano, uh, young Stephen Sondheim kind of standing off to the side like this. And, and Gypsy's narration, she says, oh, look, it's like, it's like ghosts at a banquet. And I thought it's such an interesting image, you know? Hmm. But the, all that was captured, I just, the first time I saw that, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe that. And she shows the camera going in the doors of the, of the New Amsterdam Theater. You ride the elevator to the top. They rehearsed on top of the New Amsterdam Theater. Um, oh, I love that stuff. Just amazing. Yeah, you're right. To hear that, to be in the room, to feel changes. There are some from the demo. There are some, have a gold So, Mr. Angle, da 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 They go to a different interval mm. on the demo that it's like, well, at some point that got changed for somebody. Who got to hear it change? I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I remember we talked about when we, when we had the, the round table about West Side Story, too, just, just to the point of saying, similarly, that Julie Stein and Arthur Lawrence and Jerome Robbins, you know, were well-established 
adult men of the theater. And that to some degree, what Sondheim was bringing was youth to the, to the group and sex and could speak and write for Tulsa and write for the kids and could bridge, you know, that in some ways had it been Comden and Green writing the book and lyrics or something would have just been a very, very different yeah. showbiz show. So I like to wrap these up uh, with, uh, it's just a general question. And it goes like this. If, you're, if, if somebody was going to see Gypsy and they've never seen it before, they let you know they've got tickets to a production of Gypsy, what would you tell them, prepare yourself, this is going to be your experience? What are you going to get when you go see a production of Gypsy? Hmm. What would I tell them? What are you going to experience? Oh, you're going to see that? It, wow. It's going to be like this. You're going to see what American musical theaters should be. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say you're going to see the perfect musical. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's, the, it's the, the perfect theatrical musical. And to call me after you see it, because I want to know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to see what musical theater was intended to be. That's musical theater for me. And I would pitch it especially because, you know, you come across people who they don't really like musicals. They don't like musical comedy or whatever. You say, you're going to get, you're going to see what that form is in its most wonderful form, which is intelligent, fast, funny, touching, and deeply moving. And it's going to like move for you. This is, the, I think this really is our greatest musical. And how they got there and how it gets to be that is truly this whirlwind of taking the oldest star. Well, not oldest, but I mean, she's not that old at that point, but you're taking this established commodity as a comedy, musical comedy legend, and you're dropping her into something else and she's willing to go there with you. You get all the benefit of that, talking about vaudeville and all that, go give it a chance. You're gonna see something really amazing that you, you will, you will love. Yeah, and call me too when you get done. I want to know. <laughs> Everybody's going to get phone calls. Everybody's going to get phone calls. Well, I can't think of three people I would have wanted to discuss Gypsy with more. Thank you, you all. Thank you, everybody. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So Thank you. you. Have a great day, everybody. Day. I love you guys. Love you. Bye. Everybody, love you. Bye. Bye. See ya. Bye-bye.